This morning we are continuing our series to the married and unmarried. So this is week three, two weeks ago on week one, we talked about what marriage is for, like what's the reason that marriage exists. Last week was week two, we talked about what a marriage is. And one of the things that we said a marriage is, is a union of two people. Do you remember that? There were two previously unconnected things, and now they have united. They have combined into one unit. And so we said over and over again, the Bible actually says marriage is the two become one. Two become one. It's said over and over again. So I was thinking, all right, now what? Like, if it's true that marriage is a union, if what we said last week is true, so they were two, now they're one, then what's the next step for us? What do we teach next? What's, how does this apply to our lives? If we're doing a multi-week series on marriage, what is the next thing after we've established that marriage is two become one? And at some point I realized the next step, like the next thing I need to say really is going to vary depending on whether you are married or unmarried. Right? If it's two become one, then what? I have something to say if you're unmarried. I have something to say if you're married. And I can't address both of them well simultaneously. So today's sermon is going to be mostly to unmarried people. All right? And then next week's sermon is going to be mostly to married people because we can only do one at a time. Um, and I think it'll be good that both groups be here both weeks. Okay? So I, mean, I hope nobody walks out. <laughs> um, um, because first of all, I think it's good for you to be able to help and encourage other people who are in a different stage of life than you. So it's not a waste of your time to learn about things that are from a different stage of life for you to be able to help and encourage other people. Also, there are principles in these sermons that I think apply to the other group if you just do it. Like in other words, there are things I'm going to say in this sermon, even though I'm going to address this sermon to unmarried people, there are principles in this sermon that are definitely helpful to married people if you just pay attention to them and apply them to your life. So, this morning's sermon only contains two points, okay? Just got two points. They are two very important points, and they are two very important points that I have been teaching to unmarried people for 15, actually over 15 years, I think it's been. This began when I was a youth pastor. I have taught today's lesson to more than one youth group. I have also taught this to, un, to, to unmarried adults on Sunday morning, so this is not just a kid thing, although that is how it began. Um, the typical title that I have used is the title I'm using this morning, How to Pick Your Next Crush, okay? Um, that's, I think, what I called it 15 years ago. That is what I'm still calling it. However, once I picked that, I, it, it, it dawned on me that words do change their meaning over time. And then I thought about this, and I realized, like, oh, wait a minute. I don't, I don't know how this is going to come across. See, when I was in high school, the process by which single people assessed and expressed romantic affection, that was called dating when I was in high school. But the generation before me called it going steady, okay? And I know they called it going steady because when I was in high school, I would watch old shows and I could see that the generation before me called it going steady. Hey, who are you going steady with? And I just always, you know, I thought that's just sort of weird sounding and old, okay? And so it's like going steady, I mean dating, right? Um, and then it dawned on me like, oh, that could happen like this morning because I'm old now. So like, <laughs> um, so I, I use the word crush, okay? Because for a long time, that word had a particular meaning. I don't know if it still does or not, but I use the word crush because for many years, that was a word that was used to mean um, like just like a situation where you're attracted to someone and it could be one-sided. It's different than boyfriend-girlfriend. Boyfriend-girlfriend implies like a commitment and a two-way thing. Crush could just be one-sided, right? I'm, I'm crushing on her. I have a crush on him. Um, it could be something that 
is one-sided at first and then changes. Like I had a crush on her in January, and but now we're dating in February. Yay! It could even it could be that nothing ever comes of it. Just you know, I had a crush on her last year, nothing happened. But it was just it was the word for I like him or I like her. And I realized you you might be here this morning. Maybe there's some of you here this morning, and you're 16 years old, and you're thinking like, <laughs> that's not what we call it these days, you know, oldie. Um, it's just like, that's, that's not the word we use. And so what I would say to you, if you're in that category, like, that's fine. Go ahead and translate it into whatever word it is that you use now. Like, I don't care what word you use. Um, but if, if I say anything today that any of the words I use, if any of the words I use in the sermon is different than what you call it nowadays, like, that's fine. Don't, don't allow that to cause you to miss out on this message, okay? If you're sitting there going, I can't believe he calls it that. He is so old. Like, I don't see how he could possibly help me. Guy is so old. He's probably going to die this afternoon. He's so old. <laughs> and so, like, I'm just saying, don't, don't do that, okay? Translate this into your words. Figure out how it applies to you because this is too important for you to miss, okay? So here we go. Oh, by the way, for those of you who are in your 30s, 40s, or 50s, you won't have to translate anything, you'll be fine. All right, so this sermon has two main points, I told you. We're just gonna jump into it. Here is the first one, this one's very important. Point number one of the sermon is, you have some control over your feelings. I wanna start there. You have some control over your feelings, perhaps more than you realize. I think this is so important for you to understand, and actually, I'll let you know, I think the most important point in this sermon is the second point. But I do not believe you are even going to be able to absorb the second point if you do not first accept this one. This one has to come first, and then the more important one comes. But you first have to accept that you have some control over your feelings, perhaps more than you realize. Um, why, why does this even need to be said? I think it's because we live in a culture, this is just my opinion, but it is my opinion that we live in a culture that believes that we are slaves to our feelings. We, we, we act as if feelings are these internal desires that we have that we must obey. And so we say things like, I can't help but be mad. You know, can you believe this happened? I'm so angry. I can't even help this, right? I, could you can't believe what she said. Can you believe what he did? I can't even help but be mad. And that's how we treat it. As if anger is something that you don't choose, anger just happens to you. Or we might say, well, this situation is just stressing me out, okay? And it's the same thing. It's I don't choose how much I stress out. It's just, it's involuntary. There are these feelings. I can't control them. I just have to obey them. And we certainly do that with romantic infatuation, okay? People say things like, I can't help that I love him, right? Have you heard this? I, I can't help that I love her. I, I can't control it, right? How many times have you heard that in movies or in TV shows where one character says, I can't help that I love her? And so this is something that, this idea you, you, you can't help who you love, this is something that has been in our face a whole lot. It's been in our face a whole lot the last 10 years, I would say. This idea that you cannot help who you love, I would say, is a major brick in the wall of the LGBTQ movement. In fact, I think I'm underselling it by calling it a brick in the wall. It is probably the foundation that the wall sits on, right? The foundational belief is you cannot help who you love, and the bricks are all stacked on that. And it's not even my goal this morning to address that particular issue this morning, okay? I have addressed that issue in multiple previous sermons. The thing that I'm trying to address today actually is bigger than that, and it goes back farther than that. Decades before those initials were a thing, 
Americans believed that we have internal desires that we must obey. I'll, I will show you this just by, by showing you, I'll, I'm just going to bring up a very popular song that came out 62 years ago, and it is still popular to this day. It's crazy. There's a song that came out 62 years ago. That is so old. This you need to understand. 62 years ago is so old. That first of all, this song is older than most of you in this room. Most of you in this room are, are younger than the song, and those of you who are older than 62, this song came out probably when you were pretty young. So this has been around for all of our lives. Right, this is all we've ever known. This, this song, and it's still played to this day. Super, there are not a lot of songs from 62 years ago that are still being played nowadays. This one is still popular. I hear it all the time. I go to an above average number of weddings because of the career that I have. And, so I, and I go to an above average amount of receptions. I've been to a lot of wedding receptions in my life. Okay, so I am a professional. If you want to know anything about wedding receptions, I know all, everything about every wedding reception. And I will tell you this. At every wedding reception, I think maybe ever that I've gone to, I will tell you, this, this happens every time. They will do this. They will play the Cupid Shuffle, always. And they will always play a song with these lyrics. Wise men say, only fools rush in. Can you, will you sing it with me? But I can't help falling in love with you. So you've heard it? Yeah. I mean, for decades now, this song comes back over and over and over again, and it's been covered by lots of people. And honestly, since Elvis came out with that song, since then, there have been a zillion songs that have come out that have that same basic message to it. What is the message of the song? You can't help who you love. You can't help who you fall in love with, right? You can't help who you love. So I just want you to know, that is not some sort of new liberal idea. Americans bought into this over 60 years ago. And while I admit sometimes feelings do in fact overwhelm us to the point that they are difficult to control, I will certainly concede that. Sometimes feelings are, they are overwhelming and they are very difficult to control. But I'm going to show you multiple verses in the Bible that assume you have some control over your feelings. We're going to go through several of them fairly quickly each. Let's start with James chapter 1 verse 19. James chapter 1, verse 19 says this, My dearly loved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to what? Anger. Yeah, that's interesting. Everyone needs to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. James instructs the people that he's talking to to be slow to anger. What does that assume? It assumes you control the speed of your anger. Right? That's why he says, set it to slow right? You have like this metaphorical knob, I guess, that you could, anger can be fast or slow. And James says, put it on slow. Why? Because he's assuming you have some control over your anger. Let's, let me show you another one. This is Ephesians 4, verse 26. Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So obviously there's a way that you could be angry and not sin. That's interesting. But look at the second half of the verse. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. What does that mean? I can tell you this, this is not a verse about controlling the sun, okay? <laughs> it's not saying, like, if you're really angry, stop the sun from setting. That's not what it's saying. It's saying when nighttime shows up, like, get over it, right? Don't take yesterday's anger into today or today's into tomorrow. The verse assumes you have some control over how long it lasts, how much you stew about it. 
Let's pick a different feeling. Look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. This one says, Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The Apostle Paul is talking to the Philippians. He says, don't worry about anything. When you want to worry, what you should do instead is have an attitude of thanksgiving and pray to God about it. But what is he telling them to do? He tells them not to worry. Why does he say that? Is that even possible? Isn't worry this thing that just stirs up in us and we don't have any control over it? Is he asking people to do something that's impossible? Or when he said, don't worry, instead pray, was he assuming that you do have some measure of control over your worries? Philippians chapter 4, verse 4. This is just a couple verses later. This is a different emotion. I want you to see this one. Philippians 4, 4 says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Now, kids that are in like Bible memory competitions, they love verses like this because they're real short and repetitive. It's real easy to memorize. Okay, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. It's an interesting verse. The word rejoice is actually an interesting word. We don't use it very much anymore. Rejoice kind of sounds like going steady, doesn't it? Like rejoice, who says that? But, it's a, but if you think about it, what that word is, is it's, it's a command to feel a particular way, isn't it? The word rejoice means be joyful, be happy, about Jesus. That's what this is saying. Like rejoice in the Lord always. Be joyful about Jesus. Apparently, you can choose what you celebrate. Let's look at the word love. I'm going to show you a few verses that use the word love. This particular one is a translation from the Greek word agape, which is not your like romantic infatuation sort of love, but it is a love that husbands are told to have for their wives. So I'm going to go to the verse. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 says this. Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Why in the world does he command husbands to love their wives? Like, has he never been to a reception? Does he not know? Like, you can't, you can't help falling in love with her? Does he not know that? Why in the world would you tell him to do it? Isn't it just automatic? Right? They, they don't choose to love, do they? And yet, this is worded in such a way that you can tell Paul thought that husbands could either choose to love their wives or choose not to. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you to, what what are the next three words? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Wow, has anybody ever like involuntarily fallen in love with their enemy? No, if you love your enemy, it's because you chose to. And you can tell that this has something to do with our feelings, right? Because he says, you've heard love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you to love your enemy. So the kind of love you're supposed to have for your enemies is the kind where you don't hate your enemy. So if you want to say, well, maybe love just means be nice to them. You know, you can hate them on the inside, but be nice on the outside. No, you're supposed to love them in such a way that you do not hate them. So there is a kind of love that is a decision that you make. And it seems to me we see multiple places in the Bible where it implies you have some measure of control over your feelings. So you need to know that. You have some measure of control over your feelings. I'm not saying it's 100%. I don't know that that that's true. I don't know if you have 100% control of every feeling, every time, everywhere. I'm just saying it is certainly not 0%. You're not a slave to your feelings where you must obey them all the time. It's not 0% control that you have. Now, I want to end this point with a story that I always tell. Um, and I think it'll be good because none of these verses are about boyfriend-girlfriend infatuation. It's actually very hard to find Bible verses about boyfriend-girlfriend infatuation. 
Um, but this story that I'm going to tell you is, so I hope that it will, f- will fit. In fact, I made this story up, I don't know, 15, 17 years ago, and um, I just, I've told it many, many times. I really like it a lot because once I'm done, the people that are hearing the story always agree with me, and they always, like, basically, I, I tell the story, and then they go, well, yeah, of course, of course you choose who you like, and I'd never thought about it like that, but yeah, obviously that's true, so let me, let me try it out on you. I want you to imagine that you are a college-aged guy, okay? You're a college-aged guy. You just signed up for classes a couple of weeks ago, and you are there sitting in your English literature class, okay? You're in English Lit, and it's a you know, well-attended class. All the people are in all the desks. The only empty desk in the classroom is the one that's to the right of you. No one's sitting in that one yet. And there you are sitting at your desk, and the teacher's about to do the lesson on English literature. And then in walks a young woman who is strikingly beautiful, Okay? Strikingly beautiful. And she comes in and takes the only seat that's available, which is right next to you. And you're like, oh, this worked out well. <laughs> and she sits down and you maybe have a real quick conversation with her. She tells you her name's Holly. She smiles at you. You're like, oh, is she, she's smiling at me? This is wonderful. Okay? And so you find out her name's Holly and maybe you loan her a pencil or she bar, let's, borrows one from you or whatever. It's a short little conversation. But, but it, it was enough of a conversation that you, you got some feelings now. Okay? Are you following me? You have some feelings. And maybe the class is over and you're done and you go talk to some of your friends and you're like, hey, did you see that new girl that's in our literature class? And they go, oh yeah, she transferred in from another state, transferred in from a, you know, a whole other college partway through the semester. Yeah, Hot Holly, and she's in my science class. Oh yeah, Hot Holly's in your science class? And you're standing there going like, Hot Holly, that's what we call her? Yeah, that's what we all call her. Whoa. So now what do you do? Because you've got feelings for Hot Holly. And so I think you, what you do next is what any sensible person would do. Okay? You go on the internet and you spy, spy, spy. Okay? You got to go on her TikTok and her Instagram and whatever else you can and find out everything you can about her before the next class. And imagine you do that. Imagine you go on there, you Google her name, you're trying to figure out stuff, you find out her Instagram, you see, like, you got a, these pictures of her from two Thanksgivings ago with her mom, and you're like, oh, okay, she used to live in Kansas City, and blah, 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 you're figuring all this stuff out. And imagine you find out some things uh, that are very concerning. Imagine as you're Googling around, you find out that there's actually some major problems back in Kansas City with her. Imagine that you find out, I mean, this is big. This is not just on Instagram and TikTok. This is stuff that was like in the local newspapers there. And as you're reading these newspaper articles, you're finding out that Holly, when she lived back wherever she lived before, um, all of her boyfriends that she had all mysteriously died, okay? (laughs) Every, Every single one of them died unexpectedly at a young age. And imagine they all died by axe, okay? Every single one of them was axed to death. And so the whole town thought it was crazy. And see, it was never, she was never convicted. It was all circumstantial evidence. But everybody in the town thought it was weird that Holly never had to break up with her boyfriends, okay? They just always died by axe. And, and her reputation back home isn't hot Holly. They call her hatchet Holly back, back in Kansas City. And I just want you to imagine you find all of that out, okay? You act like this is crazy. Watch Dateline. This happens to people, okay? So imagine now you find all that out. So so here's the thing. On Monday, you liked her. On Tuesday, you discovered all that. Now Wednesday, you show up at class. You're sitting there. There she is sitting to your right. Do you like her now? No. (laughs) Your feelings have changed, have they not? Because now you're looking over at her and now you're going, whoa, I mean, I could date her, but I could, I, it's very likely I would die, right? 
And so your feelings changed, didn't they? You liked her on Monday. You don't like her on Wednesday. What happened? I will tell you what happened. You value your life more than you value your feelings. And so that's why I tell the story. The reason I tell this, told this, the reason I made this up, because I feel like there was always people who were saying, I can't help how I feel about them. And I'd always be thinking, you could if they were an axe murderer. And then, so I eventually just started saying that out loud and people would go, well, yeah, of course. I could if they were an axe murderer. But that's my point. You can value something so much that it can override your feelings when making a decision. And if your physical safety is so important to you that you value it enough that it overrides your feelings. This is what I'm telling you. Your spiritual safety could be so valuable to you that it overrides your feelings. Your spiritual good, like your concern about how they would affect your relationship with God, your spiritual safety can become a deal breaker for you in relationships. You can value them that much that it just changes the trajectory of the relationship. And that brings me to point number two. Here's point number two. You could make someone who loves and serves Jesus a deal breaker qualification for you when it comes to dating and marriage. Just like they cannot be an axe murderer is one of your just unspoken, you didn't ever write it down, but it's just there. Like that's one of the qualifications, cannot be an axe murderer. Like you could similarly to that have, hey, someone who doesn't love and serve Jesus, I'm, they're just not on the table. I'm just not considering it. That's possible. And you should. Let me show it to you in the Bible. First verse I want to show you under this point is Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. Let me tell you some of the context of this verse, because um, it's kind of a brutal passage for what's about to happen. Um, and you may know a little bit about this. The Israelites are told to go into the promised land and wipe out the nations that are there. So uh, earlier on in the story, God had said that he was going to allow the Amorites and the whatever, Hittites, Canaanites, I can't remember, but mul these multiple nations that were in the promised land and that their iniquities would one day get to their fullness, and then he would destroy them. He would drive them out. And so the Israelites were the people who would um, drive them out and destroy them and defeat them. And so they are about to go in there and take the promised land. And in the midst of this go and defeat them section of the Bible, there's this verse about marriage. And here it is, Deuteronomy 7, verse 3, 4. So as you're going into the land where the Canaanites are and you're taking it over, this is what it, this is what it says. It says, do not intermarry with them. The them is the Hittites and the Canaanites and whatever, the people that are in the promised land before the Israelites get there. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will swiftly destroy you. It's an interesting verse because he says like, you're gonna go in there and destroy the people. And he said, but don't intermarry with them or else I will destroy you. What is being forbidden in this verse? I think this is important to understand because I think historically, probably uh, preachers, especially back, way back in the day, um, used verses like this one as the reason why they would forbid interracial marriage. They would say, well, like uh, an Israelite is not supposed to marry a Canaanite, just like you know, a white person is not supposed to marry a black person or a Chinese person isn't supposed to marry somebody from Afghanistan, right? Israelites can't marry the Canaanites, it's the same principle. No, it's not. I do not. I do not believe that's true. I do not believe that's what this verse teaches. I don't see that anywhere in the Bible. I don't see anywhere in the Bible where interracial or interethnic marriage is forbidden. 
this verse says that the Israelites are not supposed to um, intermarry with the Canaanites, but it says why. Notice, it says do not intermarry with them. It doesn't say because their skin is a different color than you. Wouldn't that be weird? It doesn't say because their nose is a different shape or their eyes are different or their lips are different than you. No, it says because they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. This verse isn't forbidding interracial marriage or interethnic marriage. This verse is forbidding interfaith marriage. Okay, well, that's the Old Testament. It's old. Let's, let's go to the New Testament, okay? It's newer. All right, first, so let me show you what the New Testament says about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 39. This is a really interesting verse. Paul's giving them instructions, and he says, A wife is bound as long as her husband is living, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to anyone she wants, only in the Lord. Now, there's a lot to this verse. It's very interesting. Uh, first of all, we've got the first part. A wife is bound as long as her husband is living. Okay, the wife is bound to who? Anybody know? To the husband. Yeah, that's the assumption here. The wife is bound to the husband as long as her husband is living. So this is one of those like don't get a divorce verses. Remember last week we looked at some don't get a divorce verses? This is another one, okay? A wife is bound as long as her husband is living. She's stuck with him until he dies, all right? Now, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married. This is interesting. So she's sitting there going, okay, I'm stuck with him. And then one day he dies and she's like, hmm, now what? Okay, and so this is what Paul's addressing. Does she, does she have to try to somehow be faithful to him all of the rest of her life now that he's dead? And the verse says, no. If her husband dies, she is free to be married, and look at this, to anyone she wants. How fantastic is that, right? Who, who can she marry? Anybody she wants, okay? And then one stipulation, do you see it? Only in the Lord. She can marry anyone she wants, but only in the Lord. I mean, every, every single resource I looked at to try to interpret this, it, it's all this we all come to the same conclusions. It's she can marry anyone, but only in the Lord. Like, in other words, he, I think Paul is saying here, she can marry any Christian she wants. Like the assumption here is that he's writing to a Christian widow, right? She can marry anyone she wants who's in the Lord, any Christian that she wants. But it's interesting that there is a stipulation only in the Lord, which means this belief that this widow is one of these people who goes, well, I can't control my feelings. I could never control who I marry next. Like the verse assumes that she is supposed to take her feelings and submit them to something higher. What is the thing that's even higher than her feelings? The standard of only in the Lord. All right, let me show you one more. Final verse of the, the day. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. Now, these two verses right here are both about marriage. Like they're specifically about marriage. They have the word like Mary in them. This one is not specifically about marriage, but the principle that's in this verse would certainly apply to marriage. This last verse is about partnerships, but I can't imagine there's any partnership more intense than marriage so that this one wouldn't apply to it. Like this certainly would apply to marriage, but this is the verse. It says, do not be mismatched with unbelievers. For what partnership is there between righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? What agreement does Christ have with Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? So, first of all, let's go ahead and answer that last rhetorical question. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? I mean, I guess if we were being literal, the answer would be, well, there's all sorts of things. There's all sorts of things a believer could have in common with an unbeliever. But they would not have in common the one most important thing. And so he says, do not be mismatched with unbelievers. That's the verse. That's the concept. Now, I want to give, go ahead and do an object lesson for you. And the object lesson really is not one that I made up. It's really from the verse. It's just not obvious in the English translation. This word right here, the fourth word in the verse, do not be mismatched. That word 
Um, if it were translated more literally, would be translated, do not be unequally yoked. In fact, there are multiple translations of the Bible that that's how they translate it. Do not be unequally yoked. I guess it's sometimes difficult to decide what words to use because uh, it looks like Paul, from what I can tell, Paul used one word, but it's the word that we would mean, it's, it's a word that means an unequal yoke, okay? So HCSB chose to translate it one word into one word, mismatched. But if you translate it into two words, you could be a little bit more literal. Do not be unequally yoked. Do not have an unequal yoke with an unbeliever. Okay, well, what is that? And I think that would have put a particular image in the minds of the people who were hearing this more than the English word mismatched does. Because that's an agricultural term. When you say unequally yoked, they understood this. Because they, like, we don't understand anything about farming. We just go to Publix, we buy stuff. But they understood much more about farming. So what is a yoke? Do you guys know what a yoke is? Okay, I got one for you, just in case you don't know what a yoke is. This is what they look like. All right. Well, let go. This is what a yoke looks like. Um, we are unfamiliar with these for the most part. Um, I mean, maybe like you've gone to Cracker Barrel and seen one or something like that, but we don't use these regularly um, because, first of all, there's probably almost no one in this room that's a farmer, so you don't do farming. And then if there are some farmers in this room, it really wouldn't matter. You still don't use this, right? Because the tech has changed so much. Now you use tractors and whatever else there are. Um, but back in the day, what you would do if you wanted to break up the ground is you'd have one of these. This yoke causes a partnership between two animals. You would put the head of one ox here. You'd put the head of another ox here. The shoulders, of course, big enough that they cannot fit through. The shoulders would then push against the yoke. The yoke would then be connected to a plow. And if you're a farmer and you don't want to have to break your back, breaking up the dirt, you can have two oxen that are connected to a yoke, connected to each other and connected to the plow, and they would move forward and they'd break up the ground for you. Okay, that's what a yoke is. Like I said, I think the people back when this was written would have been very familiar with these, much more than we are. And they would have understood that you don't want to have an unequal yoke. Like when you say, don't, don't be unequally yoked, they know that. They would go, of course. Of course you wouldn't put a horse on this side and an ox on this side. Like from what I've read, that would be a problem because one of those animals is faster than the other one and one of those animals is a lot stronger than the other one. And I don't know how it would go down, but I have a feeling one of those animals would drag the other one around the field. So of course you want to have an ox over here and a similar ox over here or two horses, whatever. They understood that. They knew that was all part of farming, I think. And then he comes along with this illustration. He says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. I think that what he was communicating to them is, hey, do not put a believer in Jesus Christ on this side and an unbeliever of Jesus Christ on this side and then link them up. Because what's going to happen? I mean, he doesn't say what's going to happen other than that there's no partnership, there's no agreement, right? There's, they're mismatched. But you can imagine what would happen. Here you have someone who says, I love Jesus, I'm going to follow Jesus. So there it is. There's God's will for my life. I am going to go after God's will for my life. And then this person goes, I don't even believe in that God. I want to go this way. And this person goes, no, 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 but this is the most important thing in my whole life. I must do God's will. And this person says, that's not even what I believe in. No, I don't want to do that. And now you have a marriage like this. And that mental image, I think, and I didn't make it up, that mental image, I think, is just baked into this verse with the, the word that Paul used there, unequally yoked. Now, I do need to do a, just a little tangent here for people who are married. This sermon is not for married people, but in a room this size, there are probably going to be some people who are unequally yoked, and you're already married, and you're in the room right now going, oh, what am I supposed to do about this? And this may be sad or exciting news to you, depending on your marriage. But when I say, 
do not be mismatched with unbelievers. I want to make sure you hear me correctly. Those of you who are already married, I am not advising you to leave them. When you go, oh, don't be mismatched with unbelievers, so I should ditch her, I should ditch him. No, I do not believe that's what the Bible teaches. 1 Corinthians 7, I'll just give you the short answer right now. 1 Corinthians 7 specifically addresses this issue and says not to do that. But you may find yourself in that situation for all kinds of reasons. It may not even be your fault. You could be in a situation where you are married to an unbeliever. One situation could be maybe, maybe you were never taught this, you didn't know better. It could be that you were taught this and you just rebelled against it and went, I can't help who I fall in love with and you just did it anyway. And it could be totally your fault. It could be that you were both unbelievers when you got married and then one of you became a Christian and now you're unequally yoked. And that's, not a, that's, not, that's no problem with you. You can't be like, oh, now I'm unequally yoked. Yeah, but you did a good thing. You became a follower of Jesus. But now you're in a situation where you're unequally yoked. Now what do you do? Or it could be the other way around. It could be that both people say that they do believe in Jesus when they get married. And then five years down the road, one of them says, I'm checking out of this. I don't believe in this anymore. Now what do you do? You're unequally yoked, but you couldn't have known the future. So the, I'm, what I'm saying is it may not even be the, your fault that you're in the situation, but I'm telling you, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and you can feel free to read that chapter um, this afternoon, like it's in all the Bibles, just read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And it says, when you're in that situation, don't leave them. Now, if they leave you, you know, they think you're a religious fanatic and they leave you, that's fine, let them leave. But you don't leave them. In fact, you, you, you pray for them and you care about them because maybe one day they will be saved because you live in that house. So that's what 1 Corinthians 7 says, so I want to address that. But, but like I said at the beginning of the sermon, this sermon is for unmarried people. And so any married people that are here, I do not want you to hear me like, as if I'm counseling you to get a divorce. I am not. I am saying this morning to unmarried people, don't get into this situation on purpose. Don't choose a spiritual mismatch if you don't have to. And if you say, but Mario, I can't help how I feel about them, please see point one of this sermon. You have some control over who you like and who you choose to like matters. So choose wisely. Prioritize Jesus in such a way that you guide your feelings away from people God wouldn't want you linked to and toward people that he would want you linked to. And for some of you, that may even be the starting point for you. Some of you might not be prioritizing Jesus in your dating life because you're not prioritizing Jesus in general. And so your prayers may very well need to start there. Does that make sense? All right, let's pray. God, I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for your word. I thank you for so many things that have been said explicitly and implicitly. And I pray that you would, you'd give us the wisdom and the desire and the courage to follow you no matter what. I was reading this morning, I think it's the first chapter of 1 Corinthians that says, no, it is. It says, um, Paul says he didn't come with a wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And I pray that that would be what, today, what happens today. I pray that today would not merely be some wise and persuasive words, but that there would be a demonstration of the Spirit's power. I pray, I ask you to, to, to be 
in us and among us and, and reshaping our hearts so that we would follow after you and that we would value you so much that it would override feelings. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that we can mess up and, and still be loved by you and accepted by you and that you've made a way for us to be forgiven. Oh, we thank you for that. Thank you for the mercy you show us. And yet don't let us use our grace or mercy that you show us as a way to be like, well, I'll just, just keep doing whatever I want. No, that we would be so thankful that you've given us grace so that we don't have to do the things we've always done. And so we thank you for that forgiving grace and that changing us grace. We love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.